Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Today we're recording in the coronavirus outbreak. So rather than being at the Cato headquarters where we usually record, we Aaron is at his house and I am at my house sitting at my table. Aaron, where are you? In the closet somewhere? I am in my bedroom with the door closed, so hopefully that will minimize the sounds of the dog or if my children start arguing. But if you hear any of that, I apologize. We're doing our best with our impromptu setup. Well, maybe the kids will start arguing about politics and it's it possible. will be perfect for this episode. I can bring is, them on. Yeah, which is called Politics Makes Us Worse. And you have Beltway kids. So I they do. might actually be the ultimate example of this. They've got plenty of disputes among themselves right now without <laughs> introducing a political element. Um, and as of now, as we'll get to when I define politics, um, they have very little political control over their situation because they can't really dictate what the government does for them. Uh, so their their disputes are just normal. Their disputes are normal, but they could be worse, as we'll discover today. So you do a you do a talk to the interns, and you're working on a longer piece on this, and we've written about it in the past too, about how politics makes us worse. And I think a lot of people wouldn't be surprised by that, especially in the current day, and maybe even specifically about Corona, which is somehow getting politicized. Maybe we can talk about that. Uh, but so is your thesis wouldn't be that surprising, right? The politics makes us worse because the other side simply refuses to give in. Yeah, I think I think a misinterpretation of my thesis would not be surprising, I suppose is the way to put it. Um, that everyone does agree that our politics seems to be pretty bad and we have lots of things that we complain about. So we can talk about, you know, how there's no civility or we're always angry with each other or, you know, the TV news is terrible and so on. Um, and that, you know, politicians don't seem to agree with each other and why can't they just, you know, set their differences aside and work together for things. Um, so we, we complain a lot about American politics, but, but I think that we, we misdiagnose the problems and because of the way that we misdiagnose the problems or at least the source of the problems, we don't get to the underlying claim that you and I make, which is about the impact of the politics on us. So I guess another way to put this is we tend to think that the problems of politics are problems of other people. Right, It's that the other side is doing something wrong. Um, we have We have – ample evidence that people, you know, increasingly dislike the other side, increasingly see the other side as enemies, as more and more extreme in their views. We get people like I think there's a Hillary Clinton back when she was last running for president said you cannot be civil with a political party that wants to destroy what you stand for, what you care about. So this this theme of it's the other guy's fault, I think is is central to the way that we tend to think about politics in this country right now. But what the the argument that you and I have been making for a long time is more that there's something about politics itself that that is harmful to us and degrades us and makes us worse. And so the politics is making us part of the problem. We can't just point a finger. It's interesting too, because in many ways this thesis is not radical for a classical liberal perspective, say James Madison. I think James Madison would understand that politics has a place um, to do the things that government needs to do, which he thought was much less than what most Western governments do now. And that if you allowed politics to get in too much to other things, it would have this sort of corrosive effect that was endogenous to the spread of politics itself. Uh, it wasn't, it was being caused by politics, not. Uh, some other thing, not people are hating each other and then they have politics. It's that they get involved in these political disputes and then they start hating each other as a product as a product of those those political disputes. Um, but we've often hated each other uh, in America, like Civil War. We've had really tense times at different times where people hated each other. Um, is there something – is this just a sinusoidal thing where we go up and down and maybe we'll have a kumbaya moment in like 10 years or is this something worse? Well, I think it's it's important first to acknowledge that we're not claiming – I'm not claiming that the source of all disagreement among Americans, the source of all dislike among Americans is politics. Like we – we dislike each other for all sorts of different reasons. We like each other for all sorts of different reasons. Especially and, you, Aaron. You dislike people for a lot of varied reasons. <laughs> but and there's never there's never been a golden age. 
That said, I think that there is something different that's happening now, and it's the result of a number of things. One is, as when we get into what we mean by politics and how we interact in politics, as the state grows, and I don't just mean in terms of you know how much money it takes in or how many weapons it builds, but in terms of how many decisions about our lives are being made by the state or being made by us through the state, um, we we have it exacerbates these problems. And the state has been growing. The government is more involved in our day-to-day lives than it used to be, although even then it's a complicated story because we can't point to, you know, sometimes people make the mistake of saying, well, the federal government was, you know, much less powerful and much less involved in people's lives in like the 1800s, but they neglect that for a lot of people they were enslaved under systems that it allowed and there had a lot of control. And so things have gotten a lot better for a lot of people. But in general, the number of day-to-day things in our lives, what what food we can buy, what clothes we can wear, what light bulbs we can install, where we can send our kids to school, all of these kinds of things, politics is more involved in them than it used to be. And that effect seems to keep ratcheting up. So there's there's that part of it. There's also a a connectedness part of it that we're simply more aware of each other politically than we used to be. And again, this is has a kind of good and bad element or at least a complicated shift in that we there's there's sometimes is a a mistaken view of the past that like well there wasn't much political disagreement in the 1950s. You know, everyone was kind of on the same page uh, because we were all watching you know the CBS evening news or whatever and we all we all agreed and the country got along and we settled our differences um but that's not quite true it just it was instead that a lot of voices were excluded from the conversation the voices of minorities the voices of women the voices of of various different ideological groups were excluded from the conversation and so it felt like there was more uniformity than there really was because we weren't listening to people now we're in a world where we can listen to everyone the internet brings us everyone's opinion all the time, and we increasingly see just how divergent our opinions are. Um, and and when that becomes coupled with the increasing scope of the state in terms of like my life choices are being defined or being controlled by all of these other people out there, we have more reason to care about those divergent opinions. And to the extent that those divergent opinions would take us in directions that we find really distasteful, we have more reason to dislike the people who hold them because it's harder to just say, well, let, you know, we can just leave each other alone because we increasingly like aren't willing to leave each other alone. Yeah. And there's a virtue there of localism, which itself is not libertarian. It's connected to it's connected to the proper scope and place of politics. And you're correct to point out that the federal government was small, allowing for slavery, of course, uh, say before the Civil War. And the state governments had a lot more control. And many of the things that the state governments did, the slavery being the Tottenham number one, but also in many states, the state governments were quite oppressive about various things. The Bill of Rights hadn't yet been incorporated to the states. So there were speech restrictions, gun restrictions, police activities uh, that would violate the Constitution now. and But still, you also had, say, the state of Massachusetts, which had also religious liberty issues at different times, but the state of Massachusetts was voting on its education program and not voting on Texas's education program which would make a big difference in terms of how people in Massachusetts thought of people in Texas if they ever did uh, at the time or had ever met anyone from Texas. They were sort of not meaningfully in the same country in terms of education policy and these sort of these high-level normative things that tend to matter to us. So it's a strange trade-off. We say, yes, the states were much more oppressive and there was high federalism, but maybe we hated each other less on some level because we weren't trying to collectively make decisions with 330 or probably 350 million people at the time. Sure. And so I think here it might be helpful to just nail down exactly what we mean by political decision-making because because we, we tend – the term politics has – is fairly broad. And um, we use it for all sorts of things that aren't quite what I'm talking about right now. So we, you know, we talk about people playing politics or office politics or, you know, which is 
intrigue and backstabbing and gossiping and all of that kind of stuff. And and that's not really what I have in mind. What I have in mind is politics in the sense of attempting to influence. So if when I participate in politics, I participate in politics when I attempt to influence the state to do things on a policy side that I would prefer. And so another way of putting that is I enter into politics when I attempt to get the state to use the mechanisms of control that it has to make decisions about your life. So that would be, you know, if, as you said, like Texas and Massachusetts voting on each other's education policy. Like if I attempt to convince the state to pass a certain set of curriculum that's going to be taught to your children, I am making, I'm asking the state to institute policies and my preferences that override your particular preferences. And so that's politics is when when we seek to influence those tools. And so this would take the form of voting would be an obvious one. Like you vote for the candidate who's going to do the things you want the, the government to do as opposed to the things you don't. Um, but it also could be campaigning. You know, you're trying to convince your fellow voters. It could be direct contact with lawmakers. Um, it could be the stuff that we do at the Cato Institute where we are publishing policy recommendations and hoping that regulators, lawmakers, agents of the state in one way or another will take our advice. Um, those are all part of politics. So politics is simply when you seek to use the mechanism of the state to influence the choices of others. Does the violence matter in this regard? Because it's so, the state doesn't just ask people to do things. I mean, it, it does first. It first asks, but eventually men with guns will come. So that gets to, I think, the first of the ways that politics makes us worse is what it actually means when we do this. Because so, yeah, if I tell you, if I say, Trevor, I think that you really ought to educate your kids in the following ways, and here's the, the textbooks that I think you ought to use, and I advise you to do it, and you say – no, you know, like thanks for thanks for the advice, but I prefer this other system, and I'm going to do that. Um, that seems like a perfectly reasonable way to interact with each other. But with the state, the the very nature of the state, the very nature of law is is violence or the threat of violence. That's just what a law is. A law is a statement that says you must do the following or you must not do the following, and if you disobey this command. We will threaten you with violence and potentially use direct violence against you. And so in our regular interactions, if we went back to the education thing, it would look more like I recommend that you use a certain set of curriculum with your kids. You say I'm not terribly interested in that. And I say, okay, well, you have to and I hold a gun to your head. Or I start taking your possessions until you acquiesce. Um, and, and we can see that that sort of interaction in our in our regular lives is not only wrong, but is indicative of kind of a broken moral character. Like the person who acted that way, we would see as being profoundly immoral. So when we engage in politics, when we ask the state to do things, what we are doing is we are asking the state to apply threats of violence or direct violence to other people on our behalf. We're saying, I want you to tell, instead of me going to Trevor and saying, use this curriculum, I want you, agent of the government, to go to Trevor because I've asked you to and say, use this curriculum and then threaten him with violence if he doesn't or take his money away from him in order to pay for the curriculum or whatever else. And so we're still doing the kind of behavior that on an individual interpersonal level we would see as indicative of poor moral character. But instead, because we're asking someone else to do it, we kind of trick ourselves into thinking now it's okay. And and we might say, well, yeah, it is okay. Like it simply is a fact that me threatening you to get you to do something is morally impermissible. But when the state does it, because we maybe have all agreed to the state or we have other reasons justifying its powers, um, it's no longer – not okay. It's acceptable now because we've gone through a political process. We've taken a vote that, you know, one side lost, the other side won. And it's now we've kind of washed it morally clean. Um, and, and I think that first we can, as we talked about in past episodes of Free Thoughts, and we can put links to those in the show notes, the arguments for why it's morally clean are maybe not as strong as a lot of people think. Um, but also, 
that sort of behavior, seeing other people as as being in the category that we can kind of threaten to get our way with, changes the way that we think about them, right? Like if I if I have an argument with you and at the end we don't agree, but I say, you know, but I respect the fact that we disagree. And I respect the fact that we want to live or lead our lives in slightly different ways. I am like recognizing a certain level of like shared humanity and dignity in you. But if instead I say, well, you know, you didn't agree. I'm going to go and ask this other guy to force you to do it. I'm You're lessened in my moral calculus. I'm seeing you as less than the fully like dignified uh, person that I did before. Um, and and so the extent that we do more and more and more of that, we're kind of cheapening our views of our fellow citizens. We're seeing them as the kind of people that we can boss around, and they're increasingly then seeing us as either the kinds of people they can boss around too or as the kind of people who are going to boss them around. And nobody likes the kind of person who goes around bossing them around. Well, it's it's – Everyone would be listening to this and say, okay, Aaron's just straight up pitching anarchy, sounding kind of Rothbardian. And if that's the case, then like if you really want to live in a world where uh, people boss you around and and do things to make you go their way, go live in an anarchist world where people will do that a lot more. Isn't the virtue of politics that it's actually that the the loser – you have a method of choosing uh, an election or choosing a policy and – the loser essentially agrees to abide by the result of that process, uh, which is which is what decreases violence overall. And so it's not that I lost an election and therefore I'm going to get my army together and come invade. It says, all right, that was a fair process and a fair election and my side lost and that better luck next time, but we're still living in this society together. And so overall, this is diminishing violence and hatred. It's not increasing it. I think that can be a powerful argument for the necessity of politics, but it's not an argument for an unlimited scope of politics. So it may well be that there are issues that need to be settled in a way that requires the loser to comply and where it's important enough that they do that we can use violence to get them to. And in those situations, politics is valuable and it may be the best way to get everyone on the same page or at least to get the losers to willingly comply or feel better about complying with the commands of the winners. The The problem is that as we use politics, there's a tendency to get addicted to it, to say, okay, well, it's one thing if you know we need to settle this big important matter and this is the only way to do it. But once we've used it and once we've kind of gotten a taste for it, um, we tend to run with it. We tend to say, okay, well, this other thing, you know, we're, it's, we move from, from crucial issues that have to be settled to I simply have preferences, I have tastes, and I'm uncomfortable that there are people out there who are doing things that run counter to my preferences, to my tastes. And so, hey, I've got this tool over here that I can use to get them to stop. Or I've got this tool over here that I can use to get them to pay for my preferences and my tastes. And and so we stop it's, – it's not that we shouldn't use the tool and it's not that we should have an argument against the tool even existing in the first place. It's that the tool is not perfect and it has costs in using it and we don't spend enough time thinking about those costs. And as a result, we abuse the tool and then things get much worse than they could otherwise be if we instead said, here is a powerful tool that has costs, but sometimes it's the right one. We're only going to use it when it's the right one. I think it's a, a Cato H.L. Mencken fellow, Penn Gillette, who has said that when he thinks about the government and whether or not something should be done by the government, he first thinks about it as an act of violence and says, would I, would I personally get a gun and go to someone and say, you know, I mean, maybe, you know, you have to uh, quarantine yourself in your house for like a current thing um, and not if you're diseased and not leave your house. Uh, that's that's a possible, you know, violence is a last resort, but you don't want to. But when I get a gun to make someone build a library, say we need a library and then hold a gun to that person and say, build a library or fund the building of a library. 
So why don't people think about the state that way? I mean, that's it seems very radical to, to say the state is just violence. Um, but if you tell people that, they will probably end up agreeing with you. So why, why is that not on people's mind all the time? I, I think first, most people just don't think about these kinds of issues much at all. You know, they're just this is this is the way we do things, and you know we don't examine it much. But but I think there's also reasons that it continues to be the way we do things. Um, <clears throat> first, as I said, is the is the distancing. So if you told people, hey, do you think that we should vote for there to be a library or to take a you know even more mundane example like New York City attempting to ban the sale of large sodas because we thought it was bad for people to be drinking large sodas. And so if you ask people, do you think it would be better if we if fewer people were drinking large sodas? A lot of people would say yes. And if you said to them, you know, do you think we should pass a law saying you shouldn't buy bad sodas or large sodas? You can't you can't buy them. I think a lot of people would say sure. Um, but if you said, okay, well what that means is if we pass this law, you personally need to stand on the street corners and when the street vendor at the food cart tries to give out a large soda, you need to point a gun at them and threaten them or you need to go and like physically destroy their food cart. Like you the the enforcement of this law falls directly on you to carry out. I think a lot fewer people would be behind it because they would see they you know have to look into the eyes of the person they're using violence or threats against and would be troubled by that. This is similar to you know like a vegetarian arguing that a lot fewer people would eat meat if they actually had to kill the animals themselves. So the distancing plays a big role is that instead it's more I just in the abstract like I kind of I support this thing. I vote for someone who says they're going to do it or I check a box when I go into the polling place to say yeah ban large sodas and then I don't see the enforcement. I'm not you know someone else is carrying it out for me and in fact in a lot of cases the enforcement's not even near me. You know, we're voting about things that are being done to people who are much further away from us because, you know, preferences tend to be geographic. And so the people, everyone I know is already doing the things that I want them to do because it's, we share the same preferences. It's the people over there who are doing things differently. And so they're the ones who are going to be forced to change their ways. And I don't really associate with the people over there. So I don't see it. So I think that's a big part of it is not recognizing is that that distancing makes it easier to ignore or not be aware of what's actually happening when we pass a law. And again, like some laws, it may be they, they're they certainly important enough that we want that, right? Like that we want the enforcement and that we might even be willing to carry it out ourselves. But for a great many, the, small, the large soda ban – they probably don't rise to the level where it's okay. <laughs> and as you point out, it's also it, it gets even worse where it's not even that that the state can help you forget the violence that that is at the core of the state, but it also will tell you that what you're doing is is virtuous. Yes. So we all, you know, we take civics classes um, or you you learn the history of the American founding or you drive around D.C. and see the buildings that are, you know, very intentionally built in this classical style that makes it feel like they're part of a long tradition going back to the Athenians. And and you're you are basically trained to see this as the best way to interact with each other. We tend to venerate the people who engage in politics, the, the heroes in American history are the ones who either themselves were in the government and made changes or the people who directly influenced the government to make changes. We are told that this is virtuous. And in fact, we're often told that doing trying to change the world in ways that are different than political is not virtuous arises the level of selfishness, right? So we tell people like, if you identify a problem, you're a caring person and you identify a problem like poverty. Um, if you care about that, if you are a genuinely caring person, what you are going to do is try to agitate for policy changes that will directly address it. And I don't mean like in the libertarian sense of you will advocate for getting rid of regulations that are making it harder for the poor to start businesses. What I mean is you will advocate for direct support, increased welfare programs, whatever else. Um, if instead you say, you know, there are people out there who don't have enough money right now. I'm going to start a business and give them jobs. Um, 
we tend not to venerate you to quite the same extent. You know, we, there are some businessmen that we look up to, but by and large, we tend to think that that's not as noble a profession as becoming an activist or running for Congress or becoming president or whatever else. Um, and and so we're we're told like, hey, if you want to be a good person, and we all want to be good people, and not just like we want to be good people, but we want other people to see us as good people, in part because we don't want to be seen as bad people, and also because we judge our own goodness based on whether other people in fact think we're good, uh, then you will be pushed into embracing politics more and more, and you'll be pushed away from embracing alternatives that might be just as effective, but without the pernicious effects of the application of violence and the treating each other in the ways that we've already discussed. Well, last week on Free Thoughts, we had uh, a Professor Maskivger who argued that there's a duty to vote, and we pushed back against that. But it, it sounds like, I mean, I you don't think I'm pretty sure you don't think there's a duty to vote. But if if we had a government in the proper scope or a much more libertarian scope where it was using violence in ways that maybe possibly we'd be willing to pick up the guns and do it ourselves. Uh, and then, so that would leave much more room for private action, more room for charity and things like this and ways to make the world a better place. But in that world, it's, it seems like politics wouldn't make you worse necessarily. And it might be important for you to vote in order to choose between better options uh, in the political realm. That's probably true. Um, and as I said earlier, this is not – I'm not making an argument that we should abolish all political processes, all political decision-making because if decisions have to be made, it may very well be that politics is the best way for them to be made, the alternatives being you know, like a dictator who just makes the decisions without any input from the people is probably not as good as a democratic system. Um, so I or think it might it's be better a, for the life of the dictator and then, and then you have to deal with the next dictator. Right. If you've got a really uh, good dictator, it might be better, but I wouldn't generally count on that. Yeah, that's probably not prudent to to bank on an unending line of good dictators. Um, so, so yeah, I think even you know, even I could say like, in an ideal world, in a world where we weren't doing all of the things with politics that we probably shouldn't be doing, and we were only using it in those areas where it's absolutely necessary, then we could all get behind it. And and in those situations, maybe in fact like. Voting, there's nothing. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with voting, um, but it's it's what you're choosing to do with it. It's how you're choosing to influence the state. It's what you're attempting to get the state to do on your behalf. Um, and so, in the world that you just outlined, where we were only voting on things that were in this category of like these are where this tool actually is probably the best tool we have, then yes, go ahead and do it. And yes, it may actually be like the moral thing to do, potentially rising to a duty to participate in it. Um, but but I think that we there's, – there's like a binary here in the sense that it feels like people seem to think, okay, either, either we have – we zero out politics. So we have like anarchism or the absolute minimal state or whatever and, and the libertarians are kind of the libertopia, the, this unrealistic view that we can just live together without any disagreements or whatever. Um, it's either that or it's – the status quo that this is you know that what you're saying is we should we should always only abolish and and I don't think that's the case I think that instead what we can do is we can say like look maybe we're using it too much maybe we should start to scale it back and maybe when I go and vote I should only vote for things that are scaling either scaling it back or are those few areas where it seems to be really necessary or the best tool that's available? So being a good person can have multiple facets to it as we've discussed. But but you also want to point out that if we kind of go from the very beginning – and we've been talking about this a bit, but I like how you break it down with a, with you know think about being a good person first and what that requires for you to be a good person and then try and figure out where politics would fit into that life. How, how does that process work? Yeah, so I think if if the ultimately the argument is that politics makes us worse as people or interferes with us being as good as we could be, then yes, we should start with what we mean by a good person because it'll clarify the impact of politics on that. And and so in that regard, I think a good person is is a person who has internally certain traits 
And these are the traits that we tend to admire in other people, that when we we look up to someone, these are the traits that we see them possessing. And and so I break these down into three. I say that they're virtue, wisdom, and knowledge. So virtue is right moral motivations. So you're a courageous person, you're a generous person, you're a kind person, like those sorts of traits. You ha- you're motivated to behave in admirable ways. Next, you need knowledge you in order to to be a good person because being a good person is is something that you do in the world um, as opposed to just like something that exists only in your own mind um, you you need to have a sufficient level of knowledge about the world such that you can act well so that you're not going to go wrong in the sense of you know I think that generosity is called for in this situation but in fact I didn't know enough about the situation and generosity was potentially the wrong thing to do in it. Um, and and then the third thing that you need is wisdom, and wisdom is what sits between virtue and knowledge. Because as I said, like virtue is just a kind of a recognition of certain moral drives, um, and knowledge is information about the world. Wisdom is what says, okay, which moral drives apply to the given situation? Taking the knowledge that I have, what moral drives are the ones that apply here, and how much? So sometimes say like anger is the right response to a situation, but that doesn't mean that like infinite anger is the right response, that like blowing up is the right response. But sometimes a situation might exist where like if you're not getting at least a certain level of angry, you're doing the wrong thing. Um, So wisdom is what helps us tie together our moral motivations and our knowledge in appropriate ways. So those are the those are the internal traits I think that so someone who we see as virtuous and knowledgeable and wise is the kind of person that we tend to admire. Um, then you need you need external stuff because we're not born as good people. We we learn to be good people um, and we we act upon this. We develop. It's a skill that you acquire and practice and. And so we need we do that in an environment. So that environment needs certain things. Um, the first that it needs is a degree of freedom, in the sense then that we are the ones who can choose to act rightly or wrongly. When we're acting well, it's because we chose to do it. We have the opportunity to explore different ways of living. Um, you need you need freedom to kind of be the person that you're you want to be. We also then need a level of wealth. It's hard to exercise all the virtues if you're starving to death. Um, and and so the more wealth that we have, basically the more options that are on the table to us, both in terms of variety, that you know there's, there's more opportunities out there to explore different ways of living and learn from each other, um, and, and in terms of just having avenues open, that I may be able to see that there are different paths that I could take, but a lot of them are cut off from me because I don't have the the level of wealth to pursue them. Um, and then finally, we need what we could call like moral role models or educators because as I said, we're not born with these skills. We're not born with all the virtues. We're not born wise. We're certainly not born with all the knowledge of the world. And so we need to learn that stuff from other people, from literature, from the examples of others, from teachers, and so on. Um, and and so those those external things allow us to both cultivate these internal traits and to then fully put them into practice. And and so that's the those things are the internal traits of virtue, wisdom, and knowledge, and then the environmental characteristics of freedom, wealth, and moral teachers. Call it um, are. I think what's necessary for us to both become good people and then to fully live out our lives as good people. If you took any one of those six away, it would either become more difficult or impossible to be what we would consider to be like fully good human beings. And and I should clarify just quickly, when I talk about like knowledge or wealth in particular, um, I'm not making the kind of absurd claim that that you have to be rich to be good, um, 
or that you have to be you have to be like highly educated to be good. That's not true at all. These are like these are like minimums. So when I talked about, you know, like it's hard to do this, how hard to develop these traits if you're starving to death. Like not starving to death, having the wealth to overcome that. But there certainly is a point of diminishing returns in that regard. And again, knowledge too. And we know lots of people who like have huge bodies of knowledge but don't seem to really have it when it comes to like acting in the world. Um, yeah, so, so this is think, like if you think something helps people. I mean, if you have some crazy belief like like water is poison, and and therefore you don't give people water, then you don't have the knowledge to help people out. So it's something very basic like that. Yes, yeah. These are these are more basic levels. This is not this is not like an argument that precludes a whole bunch of people from participation. It sounds like. I felt I felt like the last ten minutes, and I don't think Aaron has seen this, but I felt like I was getting a lecture from the character Cheaty on the Good Place um, about how to be a moral person. Uh, but it's interesting if we go back to this question of like where do we go wrong, or how, how does this go wrong in terms of politics and the forces surrounding politics pushing us to be worse people. I mean, you kind of want, if you went through the steps and you said, okay, step one, I mean, you could, we set up a political system. It doesn't necessarily make us bad at the beginning. Uh, and then people can increasingly ask that political system. So step two, people increasingly ask that political system to solve problems with violence that it, that they are unwilling to solve or frustrated with um, and unwilling to solve via just asking people to change their preferences, so education and things like this. Step three, those choices get more taken over by the government, more violence is used, and it's so pervasive that it's almost ignored by people. Uh, and their participation in it seems as ne necessary. And you get to like step four, which is that increasingly as you see the other person winning, say, a local school board election or winning a presidency, and you feel like they're going to use violence to take away the things that matter to you most or take away your health care, destroy your way of life, I think is what something like that was what Hillary Clinton said. Then you start believing, have biases and hanging out only with people who agree with you because you think they're going to take everything away. And you start believing these things about those people because the system has put you in to this sort of combative position. Uh, over these things that matter most to you. Um, so you get your own news feed because you can't even stand to listen to them and you start only hanging out with people of like-minded and then you every election is now an apocalypse, which is where we are today. Every election is the end of the world and our way of life as we know it if you don't vote for the right political party. And none of that seems good for our souls. Yeah, I mean, so I think you can you can go through so the story that you told about the steps of politics. I think you can take a similar like approach to looking at the six characteristics that I gave and seeing how does politics and a politicized environment impact each of them? Because again, if to the extent that politics undercuts our ability to access or develop any of those six, it makes it harder for us to be good people leading good lives, assuming you accept my my breakdown of what that means. Um, and so, yeah, so virtue, I think the one of the chief moral principles is don't use violence against other people. We can, we can say there might be some exceptions of self-defense or whatever else, but by and large, one of the first rules we teach our kids is don't hit each other. Um, don't club someone over the head because you want the toy that they're playing with. Respect other people's rights to make their own decisions. It seems just like core to virtue. And and so to the extent that politics encourages us to do the opposite, um, not only does that mean we're simply doing the opposite, so we're behaving outwardly in a less virtuous way, but also there, I think there's a tendency to think that maybe we can kind of wall off the political sphere and say, well, what happens in the political sphere stays in the political sphere. Um, but But these are all, you know, these are habits. These are like habits of mind, habits of thought, habits of behavior. And so to the extent that we get used to thinking of other people as lesser, as as beings, you know, who it's acceptable to boss around in in these really dangerous ways or to use violence against, that's going to carry over. It's it's defining the kind of people we are. And so it's lessening it's lessening virtue. Um, and as you said, like as we start to use this violence more against each other, we start to see each other more as enemies and we start to hate each other. And, and internalizing that hatred is really damaging to our moral character 
as well. And of course, politicians, like the every election is an apocalypse, um, politicians, political parties have huge incentives to convince us that the other guys are even more dangerous and worthy of hate than they actually are, because that's how you get out the vote. That's how you get people to donate to your campaign. You know, you don't raise a ton of money or turn out huge waves of voters by saying there's not much difference between me and the other guy, or this decision is not going to be very consequential. Um, and so we're, we're instilling those sorts of thoughts and those sorts of traits. Wisdom, yes, like we are we increasingly cut ourselves off from alternative sources of information. We we tend to get overreact to things, so we're not applying the appropriate level of response because we've been told like this this matters hugely, or you know I have every right to do this, or the person that is on the receiving end of it is you know not worth my moral consideration. Um, knowledge we we put ourselves in filter bubbles. We get information, you know, from sources that align with our tastes or our political preferences and discount as fake news, anything that might be from someone who disagrees with us. And so we're cutting ourselves off from sources of knowledge. And increasingly, we like are taking in as knowledge stuff that is anything but misinformation simply because it confirms what we already think. Um, and then we can we can talk about like the the external factors too that obviously i mean like by definition the more of our lives that are controlled by the political process the less freedom we have well maybe not necessarily by definition but but uh, if you win those pro- those elections or if the elections are over certain things it doesn't mean that they have less freedom it has it means you have the options that you get because you won the election the other side might not have those options Yes, of course. If we win an election in the sense that like the preferences that we already had are the ones that are now going to continue to be acceptable or are going to be subsidized, um, then we haven't we haven't reduced our own freedom um, because we're we're still doing the things that we wanted to do. We've simply reduced the freedom of others. But first, we don't win most or certainly not all elections. Um, and so the more that we put into the political sphere, the more likely it is that choices we want to make are are going to be cut off from us. Um, but and, and the more that we put in there, the more we're encouraging others to do the same, the more we're encouraging others to, to fight back against what we want. And also, it, freedom is is not just my ability to do things, but it's also my ability to see other people doing things that I might not have thought of to learn from the example of others. And so if I'm cutting off all of their options, most of the time they may be doing stuff that I find distasteful, but some of them may use their freedom to do things that I think, hey, that's worth emulating. And we've cut that off. It's also interesting too, but that something that just occurred to me where even if you win 51% of the vote or 50% plus one person, and therefore, as you said, get your way. So like you, you would have, you know, if you weren't politicizing, say mm-hmm. schools, and if you would have sent your kids to, let's say, a school that focuses on art or, or a certain type of educational philosophy. You would have done that if it was a free market, if it was just your choice. But then you win the election, and so they make all the schools that way, so you feel great. Okay, my school's my kid's still going to the same school that I would have sent them to. But the interesting thing about building election-winning coalitions is actually a lot of people have to flatten their preferences down to like ag- agreed upon lowest common denominator. Where they all say, all of us agree generally with this idea of schooling, so we're going to vote for this whole group. So that you you create this amalgamation that doesn't actually represent almost anyone in the group's position, except for the fact that they're not the other guy's position. So you just get broad things like school choice versus not school choice when there's a bunch of things that could be happened or this pedagogical idea versus this pedagogical idea when there's actually a bunch of nuances that the market would let us have, uh, but they're making us just choose between two things. I, I make that analogy with haircuts. Like if there was a national haircut referendum and there was like, there was the short hair people and then the long hair, like long hair people, uh, and then like in the middle, it would be like 
that you'd have people who would choose the middle, the middle haircut. Um, it'd be like, well, that's the middle voter right there. Um, and p- people who would be just on the side of short would be like, well, I'm going to vote for the middle haircut, even though what I really want is short hair. And the people on the long in the middle would say, I kind of want the long haircut, but the closest thing for me is the middle haircut. So everyone kind of gets the middle haircut. Uh, which of course is sort of the median voter th- theorem to some extent, but also someone needs to stand up and be like, Hey, why are we voting about this? This is insane. Everyone can have their own haircut. Yeah. I mean, and, and the haircut is kind of a, a you know, not super inspiring example because it's not the kind of freedoms that we typically think of, you know, going to the mat for, but, but that's exactly what happens. And, and the more that we do that and the more that we politicize our environment and the more that we're encouraged to see politics as the way to make the right make decisions about the the scope of our lives and the lives of others the the less we'll even notice as those freedoms go away the less we'll notice that hey you know we could have done things differently because we won't see ways that they're being done differently yeah um, yeah and and so then we so that's that's freedom um, wealth i mean you could just listen to the the back catalog of free thoughts to see the various ways that Putting more and more of the economy under political control tends to reduce the amount of wealth in it, including and especially for you know people who are at the bottom. That if you care about people having more wealth, you won't want to politicize the economy. Um, and then finally, moral role models. There's a handful of ways that politics undercuts moral role models. So the first goes back to the freedom that – you you have fewer people – you have fewer options of like people who are out there doing things that you might want to emulate if people aren't free to do a lot of different kinds of things. Um, you also cut yourself off from potentially valuable role models because they're in the other tribe. They're in the groups that you find anathema. And so you could learn from them and you could improve your own life by learning from them, but they're – they're Republicans and you're a Democrat or they're Democrats and you're a Republican um, or they're from you know another country because nationalism gets bound up a lot in all of this and and you say like I can't you know I, I can't listen to what they have to say or I you know I hate them without really examining their ideas and so you've you've decreased the pool of acceptable role models to you and to your children um, and then finally a a moral role model is someone whose example we should aspire to emulate or whose knowledge we should learn from, you know, someone who we would turn to for advice. And so to the extent that politics undermines all the other things we talked about, it undermines freedom and undermines wealth, but it also makes people less virtuous, less wise, less knowledgeable, that means that the overall quality of the role models will decline. If there are fewer good people, then there are fewer good people for us to learn from. And if there's fewer good people for us to learn from, it makes it harder for us to then become good people. And then you just get it, – it just continues. It's a cycle um, and the quality of the role models declines. And so that one pulls in all of these other problems. And and even then, the problem there is that then that can undercut even the future generations because even if they can strip back on the politics, they're still working with lower quality role models than they might otherwise have. So how does a aspiring good person or a good person – I guess all of us are hopefully aspiring at minimum to be good people um, – deal with this political world that we are – we are in. We're in a, a pretty highly politicized world, and uh, even coronavirus gets politicized. I, I don't know how that happened, but uh, h- how do you try and be, be a good person in this world? I think there are two ways to think about what you ought to do. The first is what you ought to do in your actions in the political sphere or in the political world, and then what you ought to do internally, like for your own good. Um, so to start with the latter, be more aware of the effect that a politicized environment has on you. Be aware of what politics is when you're undertaking it. Be aware of how you are, even through middlemen, engaging with your fellow citizens when you use politics against them. Be aware of the the tribalism that it creates, the, you know, all of these problems of cognitive biases and choices of information um, 
and and attitudes towards other people. Like just be aware that that's not natural to your environment. That's being created at least in part and in large part by this the political actions of others and your own political actions. And so take steps to minimize that impact on yourself. Say, really, do I need to be this angry? Like, is it, am I justified in being this angry? Am I actually justified in despising these other people? Or is that just a trick of the politicized environment? Um, and so take those kind of careful steps to minimize the impact of politics on your own moral character. Then from the outward facing, like what do you do in a politicized environment? Um, I would say like it's it's not an argument for just necessarily dropping out and saying I'm not going to participate in any of this. First, because as we said, there may well be instances, there probably are instances where politics is the most useful tool. And if it is, you want to make sure it's being used correctly. And so participation to ensure that is valuable. Um, but also, you can participate in such a way to minimize the political sphere itself. You can say, look, I'm not going to vote to apply coercive force against other people to enforce my preferences. Even if I really like think my preferences are awesome, I'm not going to do it. But if I see opportunities to vote or agitate for change, engage in activism, write op-eds, whatever else... Um, that will move things in a less political direction, will move politics back to being only used in those instances where it is the best available tool to us, then I will take those, even if it means directly engaging in politics. But I'll try to do so in a way where I'm mindful of the effects on both myself and others of this political process. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.